This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Well, guys, the, uh, it's a huge title. Sorry to do that to you, but uh, the power of the unremarkable uh, which is a rather strange title, I know. The study in God's method for showcasing the wow. You guys know what the wow is in Christianity? Read, this, read the New Testament. There's a lot of wow in it. You could read the Old Testament too, but uh, we live in the New Testament's uh, time period as far as the, the covenantally speaking, and there's all sorts of things that happen uh, in the New Testament, the book of Acts and onward, that would cause us to expect something in our lives as Christians. And do you think that's fair to say that we should expect these things? Uh, I would say so. And yet, for most of us, we haven't. Now, it doesn't mean we haven't seen glimmers or shimmers. It's just that we haven't walked in that fullness of what we see in the New Testament. Paul the Apostle, Peter the Apostle, the way that they lived is markedly different than the way that many of us seem to. And so I want to address that, uh, and there's, there's reasons for it, why this is even a burden. Now, the title is rather significant, The Power of the Unremarkable. Most of us don't like unremarkable things. We could call it the mundane. The mundane sides of life are very unattractive to us. We want the glitter. We want the dazzle. We want something that uh, gives a rush. Uh, and that's just not how the kingdom of heaven is built. The kingdom of heaven is built out of very unremarkable things, which is quite a statement. Okay, what I just said to you, if you were to ponder it just for a second, is quite amazing because the kingdom of heaven is built on the person of Jesus Christ. So I'm not going to call Jesus unremarkable. However, he came in an unremarkable fashion and he lived what at the time looked like a very unremarkable life, even though he did remarkable things, don't get me wrong. For God Almighty to come to this earth and look the way that Jesus did is quite a statement, and it was very purposeful, and it is a signal of the way that the kingdom of heaven constructs itself. It is built in humility. It is not built in dazzle and glitter, which is really hard for us to comprehend, even though it is marked by perfect perfection, holy holiness, uh, the most lovely loveliness. When it engages in our worlds, it oftentimes is very mundane and very unremarkable. So I'd like to discuss that. One of the reasons, I mean, there's a couple things going on here of why this is being stirred to the surface, but uh, I've had, I want to say, two different people even in this body that have written screenplays on St. Patrick, and I just read through a, a screenplay on St. Patrick from someone not in our church, so it seems like I've had a lot of exposure to St. Patrick. One of the things that was a fresh meditation this week was uh, just on the unremarkable life of St. Patrick. Everything about him was unremarkable. No one would ever brag about St. Patrick. Uh, he wasn't known as St. Patrick. It was just Patrick or Patty. And he was unlearned because he was taken as a slave when he was just 15 years old, so the crux of his education was lost. 
And so the fact that he became a bishop in the church in Ireland is actually astonishing to all the learned uh, saints of the time. And so everything about him was unremarkable. And yet what came out of his life is so remarkable that you are left breathless when you study it. It is so utterly extraordinary. Unremarkable, yielded to Jesus Christ to allow the Spirit of God to breathe through it leads to truly what all of us crave, which is remarkable. We want to live a remarkable life, and yet we need to embrace the unremarkable in order to do it. The other thing that is taking place is in our church, I, we, we've said, and I don't want to use big terms, but uh, it's called continuationism, okay? Big, big word. I, I didn't come up with the term, and I wouldn't use it except for to try and communicate something. Uh, but there's two different ways of approaching the New Testament. One is that, oh, well, all that stuff that happened, you know, where the Holy Spirit was working in and through the church to do these things, that's all done now, and now we just have the Bible, okay? So, praise God, we have the Bible, the text of Scripture, and the leadership here in this church wouldn't come to that conclusion that all of, us, all of these things has ceased. It's typically known as cessationism. And even though certain things do cease, and it happens, I mean, we're not under the law uh, anymore. We don't have sacrifices anymore. But there's certain things in the New Testament that we believe have not ceased. For instance, the gifts of the Spirit. The moment you come to that conclusion where you believe that the Holy Spirit wants to work in and through a body the same way he did back then, it gets uncomfortable. It's a little dicey, okay? Because, and I always call it a convenient doctrine just to say, oh, it's all ceased. You know what? That solves almost every problem that the modern church could deal with. It's like, it's ceased. Well, that's, that's a good way of dealing with it. Now we can just relax and just deal with doctrine as opposed to the functionality of how we interact. And if something's going on inside of you, I could just say, well, hold your tongue and be quiet. We don't live in that age anymore. I get to talk. And so as a result, how do we deal with these things? And so one of the things we were dealing with as a pastoral team this last week was how do we begin to actually move forward in having a body actively engage in the work of the Spirit of God to bring edification as a body? What does that look like? We know what the charismatics have caused it to look like, and I'm saying what does it look like? If the charismatics are right, that's what it will look like. However... If they've taken something hostage and we need to take it back, that's what it will look like. In other words, that's part of the discussion. What is this supposed to be? How do we as a body function and allow the remarkable power of God to be evidenced in our midst? Because that's what we see in the New Testament. And I just happen to be a believer in that New Testament. It's inconvenient, but it's still true. So the question... Eric, do you believe the church at Ellerslie is functioning in a full-scale biblical pattern of truth, love, obedience, holiness, and Holy Spirit power? Um, no. Now, even to admit that, doesn't that sound like a terrible thing that I would say that we are not fully mature? It's like asking one of my children, you know, a little six-year-old saying, are you functioning in the fullness of manhood? No. Is that wrong? No, it means he's six. And it's actually understood by all of us that a six-year-old has not yet grown up unto full maturity. And I would say that's about right. Follow-up question. Well, Eric, what do you plan on doing about this awful discrepancy? My answer, hmm, good question. Well, first, I'm going to preach this message. A father and a child. How we handle the Word of God in text is how we are handling the Word of God in person 
Jesus Christ. You see, when we esteem the text of Scripture, when we hold uh, it with a veneration, when we treat it as accurate and true, when we treat it as if it is divine, then it actually leads us to treat Jesus, the God-man, as divine. How you handle the Word of God in text leads to a way in which you handle the Word of God in person. So a father and a child. So this is like uh, a letter to Hudson, who's now 13, Hudson, this command I leave with you, take all of my future books, sermons, teachings, radio interviews, and international speaking engagements, and fulfill these projects in the same way that you know I would have fulfilled them. If you love me, obey this command. Love your daddy. So now I am trying to take something that you're going to see is it's familiar. It has a familiar vibe to it, and that is precisely what Jesus is saying to his church. And yet what Jesus is saying to his church is far greater than what I'm saying to Hudson. I just am not that great of a guy to be able to pass along anything more than that. But I do do things that all of us in here would recognize quickly Hudson's not yet ready to do. It's not his fault. He's just not fully matured yet. He hasn't grown up completely. And so a daddy has left a commission. Hudson, this is what I'm commanding you to do. I need you to take over where I left off. Okay, I'm carrying these weights, now I'm going to stick them on you, clunk. And I need you to carry that the same way I carried it. Okay, that's, that's, uh, that's a hard thing to do. Well, the commission is clear, but a father does not overlook the preparation. See, if I'm a good father, I recognize that I'm not just going to dump a whole bunch of weight on my son. I'm going to recognize that he needs something in order to fulfill that. Hudson, to fulfill this high calling, I've left you with a helper. Right now you are 13 years old and unready for this challenge, but if you heed my helper's voice and obey him in all matters, he will groom you to carry weights that currently you can't carry. Prove faithful in these small mundane exercises of your soul and you will be prepared to do things that will demonstrate the supernatural power of Jehovah. Love your daddy. Now that's precisely what Jesus Christ has said to us. He has given us a helper. He's given us the Holy Spirit to carry a weight that we otherwise could not carry. There's no way that we could fulfill the commission we've received unless we were given something. In other words, yes, the commission is clear, but do we remember that we have a good father who has not left us barren of the necessary ability and strength and power and wisdom? Growth is as growth is. Profound statement. It is marked by stages, gradients, and degrees. A lot of us struggle in our Christian understanding. We understand that maturity and uh, the constant process of growth exists in God's creation of humanity and in everything from flowers to animals. They all grow. They start out in in a seedling or an egg form and they grow up unto full maturity. Right? We know that. How come we don't understand that in the church? Because that's merely a picture exactly of how God has laid out that we start. We start as infants and we grow up unto a full maturity. Churches are actually very similar to that. Now we struggle because we have a tendency to be um, easily frustrated. We look for flaws in things and have a tendency to think that we are all perfect and everyone else isn't. So we have a tendency to find the weaknesses or the immaturity points. But I would say if we were to put on a different set of glasses... To say, what does God see? God, when he sees the caterpillar, for whatever reason, is able to see the potential butterfly. We have a tendency to just see caterpillar. Growth is as growth is. It is marked by stages, gradients, and degrees. Introducing the mundane, the unexciting, the uninteresting, the uneventful, the unvarying, the unremarkable, the routine, the ordinary, the everyday. 
Most of us attempt to get out of that. We don't like that. If any of you have ever had a job that had mundane aspects in it, the number one thing that is taking place the whole while you're participating or performing that job is how you can get a different job. Most of us don't like the mundane, and as a result, it is not leveraged or utilized and exercised properly in our life. Listen to this, though. The mundane is the thoroughfare for God's greatest work. How you handle the mundane in your life is actually one of the greatest proving grounds for your strength. If you allow the mundane to be taken hold of by the Spirit of God, and God says, can I have that moment in your life right now? You know that rather blasé moment? Could I take that? Could I use that? If we allow God to take that mundane aspect of our life and breathe his life into it, well, you suddenly just found the thoroughfare for God's greatest work. Understand the nature of his working. It's in and through the mundane that God reveals his power. And I'm going to go into this biblically. It's a purposeful limitation. Many of us feel the necessity to prove God in the glamorous when God has chosen the humble means through which to reveal his glory. Why would God choose humble means? I've, I've used an illustration many times. You know, as far as one of the most profound pictures of this is uh, Moses and the ten plagues. Okay? Even when Moses is first standing in front of uh, Pharaoh, everything about it, I mean, I know we're impressed, don't get me wrong. I mean, throwing down a rod and having it turn into a serpent, not something I can whip up. Okay? So yes, I'm, I'm impressed. But aren't you a little discouraged when you see Jonas and John versus two other magicians throw down their rods and they turn into serpents as well? It's sort of like, come on, God, amp up your game. Now, I'm glad that Moses is eight, uh, the, ser- the, the other two serpents, okay? Uh, I mean, that's, that's good. But aren't you with me in saying, God, we could do this better, okay? Throw down that rod, and as this has been my proposal for years, and have it turn into Godzilla, and have it eat the two magicians, and then have it pick up Pharaoh and stick it in Pharaoh's, and stick uh, Pharaoh in his mouth, and then Moses can say, so, did you want to let my people go? You see, we can accomplish things so much more effectively and efficiently with the glitter and the glamour and the power demonstrations. Instead, God chooses small things to accomplish his big ends. That's not the way I would do it, which is why I am not God, and you could all be very happy about that. God has chosen weak things. God has chosen small things. Okay, you guys are recognizing some scripture references here as I'm saying it. That's right, and this is on purpose. God has demonstrated this. What's funny is most of us don't choose small things or weak things, so when we have small things in our life or weak things in our life, we want them gone. We don't embrace them as the tools that God will use to demonstrate his glory. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. Why would you choose weak things if you're God? That doesn't make any sense. Hey, we're not like him. He's not like us. He doesn't think the way we do. There is a way that seems right unto man that leads to death. But there is a way, if you want to look at the the inverse of that, there is a way that is right unto God that leads to life. There is a way. His name is Jesus, and it leads to life. But Jesus, did you know that it actually says that in his form was nothing that would have been considered beautiful to draw us unto him? Uh, Now that offends me at a certain level, because to me, Jesus is the most beautiful thing ever. 
However, I've spiritualized to see it. With natural eyes, you don't see it. You look on Jesus and you want to spit. You snarl. You see, everything about him is offensive to the natural man. He didn't come the way we would have thought he should. If you were planning the arrival of the king of kings, I have a hunch it would look different than having him laid in a feeding trough and wrapped in peasantry and have the announcement come to the lowest sector of society, the shepherds. That doesn't make any sense. That's not the arrival of a king. That's the arrival of this king. You see, this king did it in accordance with his nature. He is humble. Just because we are not does not mean God needs to change his behavior and his nature. He needs to change ours. Don't miss Jesus while looking for the wow. The scribes and Pharisees were looking for the wow of the Messiah. Remember what they were expecting? Him to defeat the Romans, destroy, lay them waste. Instead, he comes humble, serving. I mean, almost everything about this guy offended those that were looking for the wow. They ended up being the ringleaders and killing the very Messiah for which they were waiting. You see, when you don't allow God to calibrate your vision around who he is, you oftentimes miss him when he comes. The seven principles of heaven's work. We could call it the work of Jesus or the work of grace. So I'm going to give seven principles for how this work works. It's humble in its method. So much of what God is doing in your life right now is oftentimes through difficulty, pain, and trials. That isn't the way we have it planned, especially in a generation in which the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel swirls around us. And even though many of us in here are like, yeah, I don't buy into that stuff, we still grab along the coattails of it at times. It's sort of like, well, God, but you're still God, and you can give me a nice house and a nice car. I mean, you're still God, and you can carry me along and give me at least that level of prosperity that makes it so that Christianity is attractive to this world. In other words, we still have that hankering for ease, for comfort, for something that isn't weak. I don't want to be weak. I don't want to be foolish. I want to be esteemed. I want to be powerful. I want to have authority in this world. You see, we approach life completely different than God does. It's humble in its method. It's often understated in its manner. It's easy to be overlooked. It's always in agreement with his nature, which is without sin and guile. It's often silent in its moment of greatest triumph. It's just a fascinating thought right there. It's often silent in its moment of greatest triumph. Think about Jesus on the cross. The greatest moment of triumph in all history, and he's silent. It's not like, I gotcha, Satan, crushed head. Instead, he's silent as a lamb unto slaughter. Whoa. Here he is demonstrating the greatest picture of glory ever. What he is showcasing is the fulfillment of all history, every, all righteousness wrapped up in that perfect love, perfect justice. And he's silent. No fanfare. It's often dismissed, mocked, and diminished by those looking for a wow, a different, more glittering Messiah. Yet nonetheless, it's obvious to the God-awakened observer that truly this was the work of God. 
So I'm going through this for two different reasons. One is on the personal level. I want us to recalibrate around how God works in our lives. And instead of saying, how come I haven't raised anyone from the dead yet? To say, God, I want to allow you to work through those everyday moments in my life to showcase your glory. And in the church at large, I want us to recalibrate around expectations of how God works in this world. Does he do marvelous and remarkable things? Yes. But I believe he wants a people that are willing to be unremarkable and to be foolish and to be weak through which he will do it. The return of power. It hinges on our readiness to let the mundane aspects of life declare his glory. You see, if we're fighting the mundane aspects of life, then I believe we're hindering what God wants to breathe through in our life. We want to raise dead men to life, but are we first willing to take every thought captive to the will of Christ Jesus? You see, we have thoughts that are darting in and out of our minds, and there's a first evidence of being changed by Jesus Christ. It's not that you go out and raise dead people to life. It's the fact that you now are keeping an interior territory of your life clean and protected for Jesus Christ. It's just first things first. We want to do big things, but we fail to realize that God wants to start on the small things. And by the way, taking every thought captive, not a small thing. That's a pretty big thing for many of us, yet most of us don't see the miracle in it. So if we begin to be built up to take every thought captive, the world outside is not sitting there applauding. They don't care. They don't even know what's happening. There's no fanfare with it. And yet, one of the greatest miracles that could ever take place on earth has just taken place inside of your life. You see that? We want to throw mountains into the midst of the sea, but are we first willing to love our brother the way Christ loves our brother? It doesn't sound as fun as throwing a mountain into the midst of the sea? Now that sounds fun. And yet, we've been given grace. It's just first things first. You see, if you don't tend to the first things, you know all the parables of Jesus Christ, it's like, hey, I gave you a talent, what are you doing with it? What are you doing with that talent of gold over there? You see, we want bigger things. But if we invest the little we do have, if you prove faithful with little, you'll be entrusted more. So you've been given grace to love your brother, but you're wanting a mountain to be thrown into the midst of the sea. How about you love your brother, you practice with the first stuff that you have, and then let God grow you up to the bigger things. We want to walk on water, but are we first willing to forgive our father for his unkind actions? The kingdom of heaven is like this. First prove faithful with a little, and then I will entrust you with more. Or... First exercise my grace in the mundane aspects of your life, and then even greater grace will be supplied. There it is right there. There's the mathematical formula for increase in the kingdom of heaven. Take the little you have now and exercise it. You see, when we complain about what we don't have, and we don't utilize what we do have, we oftentimes lose what we do have. And so as a result, to take what we do have, even though it be unremarkable to the world out there, The fact that I have a grace to love you and to love you well. The fact that I have a grace to say no to sin and to to shun temptation. I mean, this is pretty amazing stuff. The fact that I have a grace to rejoice in all circumstances. Uh Uh-huh. This is what I have. This is what you have. Are we exercising first things that we would learn to be silent 
even when being accused, that we'd be willing to be as Christ in the most difficult of circumstances. This is a grace we have. Are we exercising first things? How God makes the mundane marvelous. Consider his wonders. Okay, look at a few of these wonders here. To make a helper for Adam, to reveal himself to Moses, to part a Red Sea, to knock out a giant, to feed 5,000, to heal the man sick with the palsy, to heal the blind man. Okay, we've got a list there. I mean, those are some big, remarkable moments in Scripture. Do you know what God used to accomplish those things? Mundane, diddly squat things. Okay, do you want me to go through the list? A rib, a bush, winds, a smooth stone, fishes and loaves, four men, and spittle and dirt. That's what God used. He used weak things, small things, to accomplish his big ends. So yes, we want to see Goliath fall. But are you willing to take off the armor, put down Saul's sword, and go to the humble brook and get five smooth stones? Shepherd's artillery, it doesn't look impressive. Are you willing to use what God wants to use? When that Red Sea was parted, you know, a lot of us, when we think about the Red Sea parting, it's just like, it's supernatural. It is, don't get me wrong. However, did you know that Moses took a rod and struck the waters and an east wind came up and blew? God doesn't need a wind. He chose to use wind He chose to use natural things to accomplish his supernatural ends. Isn't that just a weird thought? My mental picture of the Red Sea parting all growing up was God just parts it. Instead, there's like a wind that comes up and parts. Now, I have no idea how a wind could part a sea to start. That's one intense wind. It's like a laser beam wind. However, that's what it says. Spittle and dirt. As if Jesus needs spittle and dirt to heal our eyesight. The first time he healed someone, you know what he said? Your faith has healed you. And the guy walks off and he's healed. He could see. The next time, he does this, makes a little mud cake. Why does he need to do that? Because he chooses to. He chooses to use the things of this earth even that are weak, that are lowly, to change the world. Well, what is he choosing to use to change the world now? I'm setting you up for something. The revelation of his glory. The word of God in text is carried, men carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word of God in person, Mary's womb. The word of God in and through the church, our humble bodies, our humble lips, our humble lives. In each of these cases, by the way, the word of God in text, known as the Bible, scripture, is supernatural. If you've ever studied the Bible, it's a supernatural book that is truly remarkable, in every facet. And yet, it was put together by unremarkable people that were carried along by God. The word of God in person, Jesus Christ, he was built in a young girl? If you want to say it that way, it just seems awkward. It's like, why why are you even associated with her? I mean, this is a bad idea. Just a young girl named Mary. He chose weak things through which to showcase his divine nature. The word of God in and through the church. By the way, I know when we capitalize church, it's suddenly, you know, you hear an angel choir like, oh, and it's so powerful and mighty, the church through the ages. The church through the ages is weak. It's not altogether different than this. A band of funny people 
getting together. I mean, it, I'm guessing. You know, I, I have only lived in this generation. I haven't lived in previous ones. However, I have read a lot of Christian history, and every time I read a sermon from way back when, or I study history, it always sound, it's always funny to me how every generation sort of feels like it's full of the same type of people. You ever had that thought? It's like, boy, they had that trouble back then too. I remember even reading A.W. Tozier, and that was one of the number one thoughts. It's like, man, everything he's talking about is everything we deal with in the church today. And then I'd read Spurgeon. It's like, wait a minute. And even 100 years before that, everything he's talking about is everything we deal with today. And you just keep going back, and what do you, what do you find? You go all the way back to Paul's letters, and you're like, what? Corinthians, boy, they're just like us today. That's right. You see, we are of the same clay. God has chosen a very funny thing through which to reveal his glory. We call it the church, and putting a capital C on it doesn't make it any stronger. It's still a whole bunch of weak things that God has chosen to band together. Why would you do that, God? That's, that's my way, he says. God uses mundane tools. Brace yourselves, guys. Revelation of the day. And um, we are those mundane tools. God has chosen weak things. That's us. Could he do it without mundane tools? Of course. But in his manifold wisdom, he has seen fit to showcase his glory through weak and foolish things. Don't you feel a little offended when we're called the weak and foolish things? Like, hey, our God has chosen to do this. Why must we argue? He knows what he is doing. 1 Corinthians 1, broader context. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised has God chosen, yes, and things which are not to bring to not things that are. But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That according as it is written, he that glories, let him glory in the Lord. The tools of Jehovah. Mundane tools, us. That's us, by the way. Mundane circumstances. Well, I don't know if any of you have ever run into a mundane circumstance. But oftentimes, especially when you get to this midlife era when, where I'm at right now, I'm supposed to be going through a midlife crisis. And I, I'm not saying I went through a midlife crisis, but I have had moments in the past couple of years where I would say, I actually understand what the basis of a midlife crisis is. I did. I, I just sort of reevaluating, like, what have I been doing with my life? Is it even worth it? Should I change it? I mean, I wasn't ever tempted to buy a boat, okay? You know how you, that's like what I'm supposed to be doing. I was never tempted to do that, but I did go through, and I have gone through just sort of that reassessment of, boy, life is short. What am I doing with it? And I actually feel like I'm doing what I'm supposed to do with it, which was a good uh, end ending conclusion. But I understand where a midlife crisis comes from. And mundane circumstances are what we want to fight. I want to be important. I mean, I'm a man, okay? So I want to be significant, and I want to have a significant impact. Am I willing to do small things for small people that no one knows about? Well, that's not going to make an impact on the world the way I want it to because I want someone to say, have you ever seen that guy named Eric Ludy? The work he is doing. Am I willing to do work that 
no one ever talks about? Well, that's a waste of time. Because isn't the point that everyone's impressed? Or is the point that God is choosing to use a vessel, and that's the blessing. That he has chosen to use me, and he wants me to know him, and to make him known even in the small ways. And that if I choose to accept the small assignments, as opposed to just wait in line and say, no, not big enough, no, not big enough, no, not big enough, and actually miss the whole point of why I'm here, to say, God, use this, and I don't care if anyone ever compliments it, if anyone ever cheers it on. That's not why I'm doing it. So what about the wow? The redeemed of the Lord, another uh, description of it could be the water-walking, mountain-moving, storm-calling, body-transporting, bread-multiplying, dead-raising treasure of Jehovah. That's who we are. We're these weak and foolish things that are actually built to do impossible things. David and the wild. So if you study David's life, which I've spent a lot of time in David's life, you know, the shepherd king David in the Old Testament, uh, here's an outline of his life. Step one, deep humility, life in the mundane work of grace. He was a shepherd, the lowest position. He's the eighth son of a, a family that's in Bethlehem, which is a little nobody spot in the town of, in, the, in the country of Judah. Step two, deep humility, life in the mundane work of grace. You know that even when great things happen in his life, like he's called in and uh, the prophet Samuel anoints him with oil, you know what happens next? He's sent right back out to the sheep. Obviously, his brothers and father were not as impressed as he may have been with what took place. Could you imagine? They're just like uh, looking at, as, at Samuel, the prophet, as he's leaving. They're like, cuckoo. There is no way this guy is king. Because what they should have done is bent their knee and then said, hey, guys, I'll take the sheep for David. David shouldn't. He's a king. He shouldn't be out working. He's sent back out to the sheep. He's sent to play the harp for Saul who is the rejected king. Could you imagine how deeply difficult this would be for someone who was anointed by God to lead a nation and instead is taking care of sheep? Okay, you can follow me on this. He's doing unremarkable things. Step three, you're trying to figure out when you get out of this deep humility state. Deep humility, life, and the mundane work of grace. There's a whole bunch of that in life. Step four, five, six, and seven. And we could go eight, nine, ten, and eleven if that would help too to get the point across. Deep humility, life in the mundane work of grace. His dad calls him in one day. He's working the sheep. There's, Israel's at war with the Philistines. And David, David is likely, okay, you could, you could argue with me on this, but likely the greatest warrior in the entire country at the time. And he's taking care of sheep. Of course, he has the power of the Holy Spirit upon him. I mean, that was a great advantage that he had. So his dad's calling him in. I could just see someone come up and say, yeah, your dad wants you. Uh, And he's thinking, finally, I get to go to war. So he runs in. Yes, Father. Uh, David, I'd like you to go to the battlefront. Oh, thank you, Father. I'm to deliver bread and cheese and to get news from your brothers. (laughs) Deep humility... Life in the mundane work of grace. Could you imagine how hard that would be? But Father, son, you heard me. Yes, Father. He goes off, and guess what? Because he was worked so deeply with humility, he shows up. But what, what else has he been worked in? 
the strength of the Holy Spirit. Every little step, when a lion comes, a bear comes, he is rising up to do the work of a shepherd. So when he shows up at that scene, guess what? He sees another beast that is attacking his sheep. His sheep are the people of Israel. So he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would dare blaspheme the armies of the living God? He's a shepherd. And as a result, he is built for what we know as the wow. He's a shepherd. He, are we willing to be shepherds? Are we willing to care for small things so that when the big moments come, we don't even recognize them as big moments. We're just wired for them. We're wired to do the right thing in those moments. So imagine Hudson's yearning. Now this is, uh, I'm putting words in Hudson's mouth, okay? If I really am the son of Eric Ludi, and it's true that I have the DNA for full and complete manhood, then I should be six foot one. That's, That's me. I should be at least 170 pounds. I should be able to get married and have kids. I should be able to drive a car. I should be able to get on a plane all by myself and fly around the world. I should be able to define my own schedule. I should be able to preach the sermon this upcoming Sunday, and I should be able to take over at Ellerslie and run it. It's just reasonable. Hey, guys, if he has the same stuff inside of him, well, then that's what he should expect. Now, follow me when we talk about the church of Jesus Christ. If it's true that we really do have the Holy Spirit, if it's true then we should be able to grow up unto a full maturity. There should be a full manifestation, a full expression of what God intends in and through us as the church. The yearning for growth. If we really are the church of Jesus Christ, then we should be greeting each other with a holy kiss. By the way, I'm going to throw a whole bunch of stuff in this one because there's a whole bunch of stuff in the fully uh, matured church that uh, is there. We should be greeting each other with a holy kiss, speaking in tongues, interpreting tongues, despising not prophecy, all coming to the service with a song, a hymn, or a spiritual song, functioning in the gifts of the Spirit, demonstrating the fruits of the Spirit, commanding lame people to walk, blind people to see, dead people to come forth in their graves, casting out demons, drinking poison unaffected, walking on water, commanding mountains to be thrown into the sea, multiplying fishes and loaves of bread, and feeding thousands, calming winds and waves, and body transporting from here to there. That's just normal. That's just normal Christianity, right? So how do we become an empowered church once again? Now, it's funny because as I read that list, I am not necessarily attracted to just dynamic, glittering things. I've adapted myself for so long to accepting the mundane that I actually get uncomfortable (laughs) with the list like that. It's like, hey, whoa, guys, settle down. At the same time, I truly, deeply desire the Holy Spirit to reveal the person of Christ in our generation. I don't care how he desires to do it. I want to be the thoroughfare through which he does it. So how do we do it? We must prove faithful with little. Then we'll be entrusted with more. So my commission to us afresh, and by the way, if you've hung around here long enough, you'll notice this is not the first time I brought up a message like this. I am willing to go the long haul and even pass on a torch to my children to carry the vision of saying the church needs to mature unto that full stature again. And we will not relent until it arrives there. Now, whether or not it ever arrives there before the second coming, that's actually not my business. My business is to pursue it with every fiber of my being, to yearn for it, to go after it, and to allow God to start here. 
My job isn't to just conform you to the image of Christ. It's to be conformed to the image of Christ. And as a result, to pester you along the way, to exhort you, to inspire you. That's what each of us does for one another. So are we proving faithful with little? That's a question that only you can answer. I know in my life, in this season, I'm 47, you know, my midlife crisis range. I look at my life, my first 47 years, and I would say it doesn't match the fullness of the New Testament. But it isn't that I haven't desired it all throughout. I mean, you follow the trajectory of young Eric Ludi, and I'm like, we want this thing back. And yet I've matured, yes, 47-year-old Eric is a lot more mature than even a 45-year-old Eric. But there is still a lot that is not present in this. I want it in full measure. But I don't want to skip over the ways that God delights to train Eric Ludi. You see, I can think, well, God, if you gave me a hundred million people to lead, then I would do, you fill in the blank. Instead, what he says is, Eric, I'm going to assign you this trial that no one will know about. And I want you to learn to rejoice in it. Huh. How does that change the world? You follow me? 47, I have, I have energy. I have strength still. I have a life that I could give. Mm-hmm. And here's how I want you to give it. What? That seems like a waste, is it? You see, when we take the assignment that God has given us, instead of wait for the glitter, instead of waiting for when we have something that finally matches what our vision would be, we allow the Spirit of God to lead us in His vision, then God can use us to impact the world in a greater way. We must live large in the mundane moments. So you want to live large. That's what, see, I don't know how many of you are wired like I am. I am like a guy from a young age. I, I used to describe how I would appropriate every situation in my life. I would stick background movie score music in it. That's what I, that's what I do. I still do it, by the way. And so when a challenge is in front of me, I would have... It'd be like, young man, standing against the odds. I, you know, that deep, bassy uh, movie guy voice. And that's how I would appropriate a challenge. It was inspiring to me. It's like, okay, this is the moment, Eric. I don't want to lose whatever that is that lives large, that lives epic in small moments. That's what I want us to specialize in as a church, that we live epic in small moments with small people, that we treat those moments as if they will change the world when we handle them properly. When no one is looking, are we willing to live large? When no one will ever know, are we willing to give our all? When no one can applaud us, are we willing to be spent? When it doesn't seem very impressive or grand, when the wow seems so very far away, we must live large in such moments as if the entire world hinged on our obedience in that singular moment. Every great action adventure, they usually try and weave in the world is going to explode or something if, if you don't solve this, this riddle. And as far as I'm concerned, I love that motivation. I love the fact that things are hanging in the balance because then it demands response. It puts urgency in it. 
I'm not exact. I know how I function. I know how to sort of stir these things up in me on a daily basis. I'm not exactly sure how to be a student of a body of saying, guys, come on, put the movie score behind you. You know, I've done a lot of things over the years where I've written them in books and things, and people are like, yeah, that doesn't work for me. Okay, well, that was just an illustration of what works for me. I recognize I'm unusual, okay? And so uh, I know what works for me. I'm not sure what works for you. But that's why I'm giving this sermon. I want you to live large, strong, fully given. Don't hold back. If you're sprinting, then you give everything you have for that 100 meters. If you're doing 200, for 200. For 400, 400. The funny thing about Christianity is it's not really defined. It's like, so how long is this going? It's like, well, we don't know. It's a big question mark. Well, a track and field event, that's a hard event. That's our event. All out, though you don't know for how long. And what do you lean on then? Not physical strength. You lean on supernatural spirit wind. The breath of heaven to be in you. So your second, your third, your fourth, your fifth wind, that comes from him. You give everything you have, but you are going to run out quick. Except you are living a supernatural life. You want to show the supernatural? You give everything. In the small moments, and you will find that God will carry you, and the world will have no explanation for your life. Normative. The big word. It just means normal. But normative sounds more intelligent. That which is always, that which is the everyday. It is normative, you could say normal, but that wouldn't sound as smart. It is normative to boat across water and not walk across water. It is normative to feed a few persons with a few loaves and fishes and not 5,000 people. It is normative that when people die, they um, just die. It is normative to travel from here to there and not be body transported from here to there. It is normal to hike over mountains and not pick them up and throw them into the midst of the sea. So let's talk about the normal Christian. One who, when he needs to cross water, whether in a boat or walking on it, actually isn't the issue. Listen. Sing songs of praise the entire time, rapturously in love with his Redeemer. What defines the Christian isn't the fact that if he takes a boat or if he walks on the water. It's how he crosses. It's his attitude in which he crosses. Is he singing songs of praise? Whether he's in a boat tied like Paul was, chained, or whether he's walking upon it makes no difference. It's the fact that he crosses it as a Christian would cross it. You see, you've been given grace to cross that body of water triumphantly, whether or not you are chained to a boat or you're walking freely on your own two feet as if it were concrete. One who, when it comes to eating, shows the honorable behavior of heaven in his eating, whether he is simply eating a meal, giving his meal away, or praying over the meal to see it multiplied to feed 5,000. Whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. One utterly convinced that Jesus is the resurrection and the life and that death has no sting for those clothed in Jesus Christ. He shrugs his shoulders at death, for his vision is far beyond this temporal vapor. He is caught up in a life that is eternal, not merely measured by the stretch of time this mortal body can last. So whether or not you're raising people from the dead, whether or not you were raised from the dead, or whether or not you die in this mortal body, you live. You see, as a Christian, you do not fear death. You smile at it. It is merely a doorway into the eternal realms, into the very presence of God. See, we're Christians. The issue isn't if we live forever in this body. 
It's that we live forever in him. And so our job is to be Christians in these bodies. One who goes from here to there with the love of Jesus radiating from his face, the gospel emanating from his life, and the mercies of Jehovah gushing from his soul. Whether he is body transported or he needs to walk every inch of the territory between here and there in the hot baking sun, no matter for every inch between here and there, we'll see and know Jesus better if he needs to pass through it. One who is not intimidated by mountains, one who is convinced that mountains won't stop his forward progression. And whether that be due to the buoying grace that God supplies for the, mount, for the mountain climb or the mighty power of grace that picks up the mountain and heaves it into the sea, the normal Christian walks forward knowing he will surely make it. You don't fear the mountain in front of you. So whether that God, that's God gives you supernatural grace to climb right over it or to see it picked up and thrown into the sea makes no difference to you. You just have the faith that that mountain will not stop you. The Ellerslie Church and the Wow. This is going to look a little like the story of David and Goliath. Step one, deep humility, life in the mundane work of grace. Step two, deep humility, life in the mundane work of grace. If you asked what step we're on, I don't know that I can answer that. I just know that God is doing a deep work of grace in me, in the fellow pastors here. I know in many of you there is a lot of pain in this room right now. There's a lot of grief in this room right now. There's a lot of trial in this room right now. Are we embracing it? Are we utilizing it? Are we exercising it? Are we utilizing it as truly a tool to be a thoroughfare for the grace and the power and the remarkable nature of God to come flooding through? So step four, five, six, and seven, deep humility, life, and the mundane work of grace. Step eight, wow. See, many of us have seen the wow just in our interactions with each other because we know each other's lives. I could look at Dwight, Sherry, Amber, and Stefan, and I could say, wow. They might be sitting there not feeling very wowish, but that doesn't mean that the wow isn't coming through their life. A lot of times we have a predefined understanding of what we think the wow should look like. If we stay true to what we know to do, guys, God's going to teach us all these things. We have a lot more growth that is needed in this body. We have a need for the body itself to gain more coordination and to utilize its giftings. I would be the first one to acknowledge that. There is something more that God is desiring to do here and I fully expect him to do it. But meanwhile, let's take what we do have, the opportunities we do have, the challenges we have, the mundane elements of our life that are currently present, and let's fully maximize them. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.